Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Forgive Jane Cahoon today if she sounds a little sniffly. She's being a trooper and doing the podcast while she's ill. It's this week in this CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. I hope you're feeling better soon, Jane. <laughs> Thanks. You really made me sound pathetic there. I, I'm okay, really. <laughs> okay. All right, let's begin. Did the Cuyahoga County Council finally talk about the money situation involving a planned new jail before it approved an $8 million contract for an architect? Lord Johnston, this one keeps boggling my mind. They're like spending all the money for the furniture and the appliances before they know they have the money to buy the house. Yeah, I mean, they talked about it. Did that mean they figured it out? No. The only councilwoman or council person was Nan Baker. She was concerned enough to vote no on the first big spending. This is this $8 million. It was a nine to one vote on Tuesday to have a deal with an engineering firm that will begin drawing up plans for a new jail. They still don't know if it's going to be one or two stories. They don't know where it's going to be located and they don't know how they're going to pay for it. Uh, Baker said she knows there's no question the county needs a new jail, but she opposed this contract because there's no plan from Armin Budish on how to pay for the $500 million project. Everyone else agrees there's no plan, but they say the overriding need is so great that they have to act. Um, Councilman Michael Gallagher admitted it's a kind of a cart before the horse, but he says time and morality are not on the county side. They talked about the 12 inmates who died over the last three years and just said they have to act. I, I get it. I mean, we're the ones that highlighted all this stuff. We were all over this long before they started talking about it. But they don't have any money. And where, where they, I, what I think they're doing is being deceptive, that they know the only way they're going to be able to do this is with the tax increase. And the voters won't approve a tax increase, but there is some sunsetting of taxes they can approve without voter approval. And I think what they want to do is say, well, we're going to extend that, but it's not really a tax increase because you're already paying it even though it most certainly is a tax increase because it means you're paying more taxes. But, but why not just be honest about it? Why not just say, look, we have to have the jail. We don't have a choice. We're going to extend this tax. And yes, it's more money out of the pockets of people in Cuyahoga County, but we have to be humane. It's just, you know, strange that they, they keep acknowledging. You think it's strange that council people, that politicians don't want to say, hey, we're going to charge you more money un until they have to? I mean, I think they're just kicking the can down the road. And and that way, maybe if they don't, you know, if it's a couple years from now, then they don't have to say they're the ones who did it. Nobody but, wants to be the one that holds up their hand and says, I'm raising your taxes. 
next year is an election year. Yeah. So you'd think you would get this out of the way now. We're going to extend the sales tax. We're going to bond against that. That'll give us the money to do what we need to do. Instead, they keep looking very irresponsible. They keep giving ammunition to people like Lee Weingart to say, these people don't know what they're doing with your money. Uh, so I don't know. We'll have to see. It'll be interesting to see what Chris Ronane says about all this now that he's uh, talking seriously about running for county executive. Uh, I just it, it's interesting that only one of the council people voted no, saying, I don't want to vote for this until I know how we're paying for it. Tell me how we're paying for it. That's a basic request. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. And, and the thing is, it's not like this just came up, right? They've been talking about this for two years. They've had a steering committee that's been meeting to talk about the plans and what should be done for the Justice Center. And they still don't have, you know, a plan on how to pay for it. I feel like before, <laughs> before you talk about where you're going to put it, you got to come up with the, the plan of how you're going to pay for it. This is not chump change. This is a huge amount of money. It might be the most expensive thing the county's ever built. So much of what this government does makes you question whether we made a big mistake in revising the charter. You would think that they would start to take the job seriously enough that that they would affirm the voters. Yes, you created a new government to be more responsible. We're going to be more responsible because they're they're just not. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What priorities of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine did not make it into the final two-year budget that went into effect last week? Jane Cahoon, he had all sorts of things he wanted to get done, and he did get some of those things, but what didn't he get? Yeah, you know, let's say first that he was very, very happy about the $74 billion budget, touting it as a really, really good budget, but Jeremy Pelzer documented at least eight things, eight priorities of the governor. Uh, and I'm sure there are more here in, in that voluminous document, but he went back and looked at some of the things that DeWine originally proposed when he unveiled his version of the budget in February. You know, a big one was something he keeps trying and trying and getting pushed back on, and that's his gun proposals. He, he's been pushing that ever since the mass shooting in Dayton in 2019, but not surprisingly, the Republican-controlled legislature stripped that right out of the budget. He had sought to toughen penalties for people who are caught illegally possessing firearms and to create a database on the use of force and police shootings. And um, he had also proposed that uh, that people who are found guilty of tier one felonies or people who are found incompetent to stand trial or not guilty by reason of insanity be entered into an existing law enforcement database. I guess that's voluntary now. But um, as I said, that to me is like a, a big one that he's he's always trying to get it in somewhere. And they're like, nope, nope, nope. But uh, and then another thing that's just of interest is remember, he wanted $50 million for an ad campaign to try to persuade people, you know, particularly young people in higher cost states to relocate to Ohio. Th this is different from that Jobs Ohio billboard campaign that we talked about yesterday where that was the source of the mean tweets from New York. That that was more aimed at business leaders, but this was aimed at, you know, largely at young people. But um, they took that out. The House took it out and it never came back to the budget. That's when De DeWine said, remember, we're a progressive state, so people should move here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then there were a bunch of other things like some smoking and vaping rules they kind of softened those they they did preserve his proposal to extend the 
indoor smoking ban to vaping, but they but they allowed some other exceptions. And then uh, they did away with some infant mortality health grants. Um, and then remember this one, we were talking about this adoption language that would have changed state law regarding who may adopt a child from husband and wife to legally married couple to basically acknowledge that same-sex couples can adopt children in Ohio. Uh, but, you know, they, they didn't like that either. So, you know, that's just... The, the finance chair called it, oh, just a change of semantics, but they got rid of that. Um, and then there's a few other things that, uh, you know, aren't monumental, but some, some others I, if you want. I wonder what the opposition to the 50 million uh, public relations campaign was. Do you think that the Republicans are worried that if young people move here, they're more likely not to be Republican and they don't want to <laughs> unbalance the politics? I hadn't thought about that, but that's a, I guess that's a possibility. You know, I know there was still like a, uh, a chunk of coronavirus relief money that DeWine was going to be talking to the legislature about how to spend, and maybe he'll get them to agree to spend on that. I mean, it just seems like a smart move right now when people are, are really changing their lives, that they've changed what they value to try and get them to come here because this is better than living in a dense city where you have a hard time getting around. There's a lot to offer. But if you don't get the word out, other places will end up getting that benefit. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at it, but it may be politics. You're listening to This Week in the CLE how common is it for a lame duck Cleveland mayor to protect loyalists with jobs with good pay from which they cannot be fired without cause? Laura Johnston, I am sure Layla Tassi wishes she were here to talk about this today, <laughs> but, but it's all yours. And I hear I hear some kind of yard work going on in the background. So bear with us, folks. Oh, sorry. That is not it's our, that's our neighbors. But um. Yeah, it is really common. It's nothing new, nor is it illegal in local, state, or federal government. And it's classic in Cleveland that a lot of appointments will involve offices in the public utilities or building and housing departments. So Bob Higgs looked back at the last three administrations, which is kind of crazy that it's only three administrations that date back to the 1990s. Some people seem super qualified. They were promoted by the mayors who followed them. Some I have never heard of before, but... Um, yeah, it was pretty interesting, starting with Mike White. He found new jobs for a host of administration loyalists. Um, he had in office 12 years, obviously, as you know, and his chief of staff and his executive assistant were appointed to the city's civil service commission, several others to the board of zoning appeals. And one of those included Ken Silliman, who later became uh, Mayor Jackson's chief of, chief of staff. Also, because the city controls the schools, a longtime white ally was Nicholas Jackson, the brother of Frank Jackson. He was appointed a chief advisor of a billion-dollar construction program. And I did not know this. Nina Turner became the director of governmental affairs for the district. Yeah, Mike White had pushed Nina Turner. He was trying to, to get a majority of supporters on council after a coup had really blocked him. And he had put her up for a council seat and she didn't win. So he rewarded her. The, the, the sad thing about these kinds of appointments is what it does to the public trust. And I, when we do these stories, when, when Jackson appointed Phyllis Cleveland to the very high paying job after she resigned council, I heard from people. And when Bob's story appeared, I heard from people. They're, they're just angry about it because they look at it as full patronage and taking care of people. And it undermines confidence in government. I get 
that they can do it and they all mm-hmm. seem to do it. Jen Campbell did it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you would think that they would care a little bit more about their legacy because this stuff is remembered for the long haul. I remembered it. That's why we did the story. I'm like, wait. <laughs> yeah. These, a lot of these are making really fairly big money. You know, these are not just like sock them away, like desk jobs, you know? Yeah, I know. It's a, uh, it's a disappointment. We'll be watching to see who else Frank Jackson puts in to protect the jobs, if anybody. Uh, but, but if he's anything like Mike White, we can expect to see a bunch. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the end of the coronavirus restrictions bring Cleveland Indians attendance back to pre-pandemic levels? Jen Cahoon, a lot of people thought that once the restrictions were gone, people would explode out of their doors to go to places that they had missed during the long period of the pandemic. Is that what we are seeing? Sadly, that really hasn't materialized at uh, Progressive Field, although I can tell you from attending four games last week, at least part of four games, that there were a lot of people there, uh, although the second half of that doubleheader on Wednesday was was really pretty sparse. But Mark Bona compared the attendance this June to June of 2019 before the pandemic. Um, Apparently, the Indians had a similar record then, although... I would like to note that they probably were not as riddled with injury to their starters as they as they are now. But the the sad news is that they averaged almost twice as many fans in uh, June of 2019 versus this June. For uh, for this June, the Indians uh, drew 143,496 fans over 11 home games, and that was an average of 13,045 per game. But two years ago, they drew. 335,095 fans, averaging 23,935 fans per per game. So, you know, the the COVID restrictions totally came down at Progressive Field on June 2nd, but that that game ended up getting rained out. I don't know if people remember. And then they had a big, you know, kind of return to the place uh, that weekend, I believe. But anyway, so there you have it. It's, uh, people are kind of, they're coming back, but not, not, at the levels we saw. You know, I get the sense from the notes we get from people that that the Indians fan base is a little older than the other sports. And I wonder if if there's just reservations about going into crowds because of the coronavirus, even with the restrictions lifted. I talk to people who say they still will not eat indoors in a restaurant because they're worried. They're vaccinated, but the, the, the Delta variant scares them. And I wonder if people just cannot, There, there's a set of people that just can't, fathom going elbow to elbow in a crowded facility yet? I don't know. I I see a fair number of elderly people at the stadium. I guess I'll have to count myself among those. And in fact, that might be how I got this stupid cold. um, (laughs) See? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I do see people who are obviously older that are there, but that's just anecdotal. It's it's a scary thought, though, because if they can't get their fan base up, it raises questions about their viability as they come back to the public now to get the big financing deal for the stadium upgrade. We've talked about it. We're expecting it one of these days, 80 to 100 million in public financing for stadium upgrades. But it does raise questions about the viability of this team. We're actually working on a story that uh, looks at the long term prospects. Uh, I hope they get their the fans up. The weather certainly has been nice. You've had some beautiful nights at the ballpark, right, Jane? Yeah, uh, you know there there 
there's been a little bit of rain here and there, but on a couple of the nights it was downright cool, like light jacket weather, which I'm fine with. And they have been exciting to watch before the injury spurred. I mean, right now they're decimated, but before that they were doing some fun things. Yeah, like the last Monday's game, they they beat the Tigers. I think it was like thirteen to five, and then the next few games was do you, just do you awful. think this is Laura, Laura Johnson? Johnson. Um, do you think who I will be going to the ballpark now that Little League is over? <laughs> but do you think it has anything to do with the broadcasting of sports? I know it's on. You know, it's harder to find it when people don't have cable these days, and we can't get it at our house. So people just kind of like tune out the team in general. Hmm. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought that if you're not ever present in people's minds, then they don't even think to come down to the ballpark. I suspect it's the coronavirus. I think there's still a lot of people that are pretty wiggly about yeah. this. Um, you know, but Laura it, might be onto something because that um, the the regional sports networks are no longer carried by a lot of those streaming services. There was some dispute, so right. you you've got to like get it through cable TV, basically, or. Yeah, you we, know, we can be. watch the Mets, but we can't watch the Indians. <laughs> wow. Well, and also baseball hasn't done a very good job of attracting the next generation. Uh, the, the other sports seem to have much more firmly implanted in the minds of younger fans than baseball has. So baseball could be in trouble in the long haul. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Can Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, finally rest assured that the former police officer who killed her son will never again wear a Cleveland police badge? Lord Johnston, it boggles the mind that we're still talking about this as a possibility. Uh, you would think that with what happened, uh, where he lies on his job application and then you know, kills Tamir Rice, that, that he would never be allowed back. But that was a question until this week, right? Yeah, absolutely. We are talking seven years almost since this happened, but it's gone up to the Supreme Court, the Ohio Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. So the union's still saying, oh, we're going to try to figure out another way to appeal. But as far as I can see, we're done. Um, Tamir's mother, Samario, made a statement. She said, quote, I'm glad that Loman will never have a badge and a gun in Cleveland again. And obviously we're talking about Timothy Loman, Four of the Ohio Supreme Court's seven justices declined jurisdiction in this case to review an eighth district court of appeals finding in March that the union hadn't properly served the attorneys for the city when it was challenging an arbitrator's decision that Tim Lohman could be fired. And that was for lying on his job application about his past um, stints in other police department and independence. So Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor joined Justices Jennifer Bruner, Michael Donnelly, and Melody Stewart, determining there's no constitutional issues to consider this. Three judges dissented. There was no written opinion explaining this vote is, I guess, the custom when they declined to take up an appeal. But um, yeah, this is this is hopefully the end of the road for this. In this case just raised serious questions about the police union. They they have a duty to represent their members, but they're also a part of the community and continuously fighting a lost cause to bring him back as a police officer would have been devastating for the city. It would have been devastating for people all through the city, and yet they fought and fought, and even now they're saying we're going to fight. It, it just it creates animosity between the community and the police when the police union champions such 
bankrupt causes as this. Yeah, Timothy it, Lohman should never be a police officer again. And you again. would think that almost every police officer would agree with that statement. Nobody wants to align themselves with a guy who killed a 12-year-old. I think maybe they're just saying, you know, for precedent, they have to, you know, they have to fight every case. They don't want in the future to say, well, in this case, this, you know, you didn't fight for it. I don't know what it is. It seems but like they, a very black and white issue to them. But they did fight it. Yes, they took it the to court. Time. They took it to an appellate court. They don't have to take it to every appeal. They can be realistic and say we screwed up. Well, you know, the truth is they might be doing this because Timothy Loman could sue them. Yeah. They they you know, it's legal malpractice. They didn't file the stuff like they were supposed to. They didn't represent him the way they should. So maybe they were fighting it out of self preservation. But it it you know, it tormented Tamir Rice's mother that she kept thinking he could wear a Cleveland police badge again. Uh, so thankfully that can't happen. He could still be a cop. Somebody could hire him somewhere. Uh, I, I'm not sure anybody would want that kind of baggage. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does the new anti-hazing law mean for Ohio college students? Jen Cahoon, this is the law now, right? Yes, it is. Uh, it, it, although it takes effect this October, it's Senate Bill 126 and Governor Mike DeWine signed it uh, Tuesday. It basically broadens the definition of hazing in state law and it toughens penalties for those who haze others. And it makes authority figures more accountable. Uh, they It holds, holds them responsible for if they recklessly allow hazing to occur. Uh, so the way it expands hazing is that uh, it, it will now include coercing another to consume alcohol or a drug of abuse. Um, until now, I guess, it, uh, state law defined hazing as being part of an initiation ritual. So this law broadens that out. Uh, and then uh, the penalties are also increasing. They're, they're going to increase from a fourth degree misdemeanor to a second degree misdemeanor. And then they're also making it a third degree felony to recklessly participate in hazing that includes forced consumption of alcohol or or drugs that results in in serious physical harm. And as I said, people like uh, teachers, you know, school volunteers, all kinds of people, if they're involved in this, they can be charged with a third degree felony if they recklessly allow this, and that can bring up to three years in prison. So anyway, the, the bill is better known as Collins Law because it was named after Colin Wyant, who was an Ohio University student who died in 2018 in an off-campus fraternity house. Uh, his family said he was beaten and forced to take drugs and, and waterboarded as part of this hazing ritual. Um, and so this legislation, they had proposed it earlier, but it, it failed to pass during the last legislation. But then we had another hazing death, March 7th, of a Bowling Green State University student, Stone Foltz, who died of alcohol poisoning during some college fraternity induction ritual. So anyway, there there was there was even more, you know, urgency here. So they finally passed it and DeWine in signing it said this is like a zero tolerance approach to this. So if you're going to pass an anti-hazing law, wouldn't it make more sense for it to go in effect in, say, August before the kids come back to school? By October, the hazings will all have happened already. Yeah, yeah, there is that, huh? But, um, you know. So the kids have one more year where they could force people to drink well, entire bottles you know, of liquor. If nothing else, it'll kind of, you know, promote awareness of this before it actually kicks in, I guess.
You would have thought that this is one thing the legislature could have passed under emergency to make it effective immediately. Uh, I guess not. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, Laura Johnson, I'm throwing one at you that you're not prepared for. Oh, why Why do, did some researchers find that the Vaximillion program was not effective in getting people to get vaccinated against the coronavirus? Well, because they said they looked at a whole bunch of other states at the same time, and they didn't really see much of a difference in Ohio compared to other states with their vaccination rates. Remember when Mike DeWine announced this, it was right when Pfizer was opened up to the 12 to 15 year old population. So there was going to automatically be an increase in people getting vaccinated because there was, you know, three years worth of kids who could. Um, obviously we saw the Vaximillion winners. Mike DeWine thought it was a big success. He had these great interviews with them and we kept saying, God, he couldn't choose better people to, to get on here. And some of them said this, the Vaximillion really helped me, um, make up, not necessarily make up my mind, but do it and stop procrastinating, I guess. But these researchers in Boston, I believe, and this study was published in the Journal of American Medical with the A and JAMA, but it was published and I believe peer reviewed said that it just, it doesn't look like the vaccination lottery worked, that it really didn't make much of a difference. Uh, I, the thing that troubled me in it was that they, they made that conclusion without, without fully exploring it. They, they looked at numbers, they looked at statistics, but they also did find that Ohio's drop mm-hmm. in vaccination rates wasn't as precipitous as states that weren't doing this. You got to remember this. At first, there was a scarcity of vaccine and all the people that wanted it were mad because they couldn't get it. Then suddenly it was available. Everybody got it. Vaccination rates rocketed. And then they stopped because there's a whole bunch of people in Ohio that are afraid of the vaccine or they're Republican men who are just taking a stand. So so every state saw drops in the vaccination rate. But after Vaximillion, Ohio's dropped more slowly. I would think that that's evidence that it it did. It did work. I'm surprised they also didn't try and do a survey to -hmm. talk to people. Did you get vaccinated because you wanted to win Vaximillion? Because I think that's the only way you're going to find out if this spurred people to get vaccinated or vaccinated more quickly. It seemed like it was a little bit cheesy to me. Yeah, I can understand what you're saying. I mean, this was one study and obviously the DeWine administration does not agree with it. And a bunch of other states followed Ohio's lead in in setting up lotteries, California, New York, Maryland, Louisiana, all sorts of places. And so they, I mean, they see it as a success. I don't think we're going to have a definitive answer on this. But look, the the thing it did do is it got a ton of attention. Mm -hmm. So people were talking about it. We were all talking about it. Everybody you knew was talking about it. And in talking about it, you're talking about the vaccine. So it raises awareness. I get that there are people who are dug in, that it just won't get the vaccine for whatever reason. But I'm not sure how you can call something a failure that forced it into the consciousness in a way that nothing else was I'd like to see more research because I'm I'm not quite buying this one. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is cardiac contractility <laughs> modulation therapy, and which Northeast Ohio hospital is a leader in using it? 
Laura Johnston, I'm throwing this one to you too. That's right, because I am now the medical expert, but I am not going to say that phrase. I'm just going to call it CCM for short, but it's UH, University Hospitals. They recently became the first health system in Northeast Ohio and one of the first in the entire country to use this therapy. It uses a device surgically implanted in a patient's chest. It's kind of like a pacemaker, but in, instead of helping regulate a heartbeat, CCM therapy sends electrical pulses to a patient's heart to improve its ability to contract. So it only does this a couple times a day, in one hour increments, five times. These are painless. And then you charge the battery once a week and you hold a charging wand over your chest for an hour, which is kind of interesting. It's made by a New Jersey medical device company called Impulse Dynamics. They said they've used it in 4,500 patients worldwide. And the idea is kind of to make your heart stronger so that you'll be able to walk up a flight of stairs or carry a bag of groceries back to the car. It's not immediate, but over time, your quality of life improves. Okay, then. I only asked that question because I wanted to hear you say the phrase, but I guess you're not going to get that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, here's a fun one. What does our esteemed travel writer, Susan Glazer, have to say about the floating tent resort in Troy, Ohio, where people spend the night camping on the river? Jane Cahoon, I mean literally on the river. (laughs) I want to thank you, Chris, for giving me this fun story today. I mean, how could you resist reading Susan's story, which, which the headline said, floating tents in Troy offer relaxing overnight on the Great Miami River. But what about the bathroom? (laughs) So anyway, Susan and her husband gave this a try. They went to Troy, which is in southwest Ohio, to the Great Miami River, where they have these 10 inflatable tents that are moored on the river. Supposedly, this is the only place in the world where you can sleep in a floating tent, which I think is a pretty bold claim. But uh, of course, you can only get to them with like a 10-foot inflatable raft and a couple of paddles that they give you to use, you know, to not only to get back and forth, but to explore the river. So the, um, the tents were purchased by the city several years ago with grant money from a local foundation. And, you know, they're part of a broader effort to improve access to this river. It runs 160 miles through Southwest Ohio before joining with the Ohio River near Cincinnati. But Susan describes, as only she can, how this tent village is is part of the city's Treasure Island Park. It has a small amphitheater, trails, and a boat launch area. It also has a small bathhouse, two toilets, and two sinks that are open all night, but no shower, although they hope to, to add one. So she says, surprisingly, she slept pretty well on this um, in this inflatable tent, kind of like a waterbed, I guess. But um, And then as for the bathroom question, she and her husband had dinner in Troy, and then they came back, they used the restroom, and then they paddled back to their tent, and there were lights from the park guiding their way. So she didn't have to get up in the middle of the night and paddle to the bathroom, Also, although she said she probably could have handled that, but she got up really early and paddled her way to shore but uh and she wasn't so it, she wasn't the only one worried about that she talked to other people that yes. were like, yeah and there was one person who didn't do it because they were concerned about that that she had heard tell of yeah can, can i just say this is not on my bucket list <laughs> things to do i mean first of all i tend to get motion sickness on the water and the thought of being out there on a river with no bathroom to just walk to would probably keep me up all night and when it gets windy 
they bump into each other. Yeah, right. They had a little wind problem. So they were apparently, I think at one point they could have maybe built a fire, but they didn't do that because of the wind and some, yeah, I guess maybe sometimes they clunk into each other or something, but yeah, they have you know, floating, just... floating fire pits that, which also kind of threw me. What if it gets too close to your tent? <laughs> the nylon does kind of burn. Anyway, it's... I feel like if I took my kids camping there, I'd make them sleep in life jackets. I don't think they would like that very much. <laughs> well, those, I think she said, if you fall into the water, it's only three feet deep. Uh... So all you have to do is stand up. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a charming story. As, as Susan Glaser always finds these fascinating things that, and this is fairly close to home. So, good story. It's in Cleveland.com. I believe it'll be in the Plain Dealer on Sunday. You're listening to this week in this CLE. Well, that'll do it. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more about the news. Mm-hmm.